So yesterday was just kind of a prelude to what I want to get into today. So we, we got a little, we got our feet wet. But the idea of the, the righteous being sealed at Shavuot, maybe you never heard it verbalized before in exactly that way, but you already knew it. And I'll tell you how you knew it. The seal of the Holy Spirit. It's given at what feast? Shavuot. Acts chapter 2 is a replay of Mount Sinai. Because if you know a little bit about the tradition of Mount Sinai, um, and again, you kind of have to go back into the rabbinic sources, and you say, well, that sounds a little odd because that's not in the Torah. But once you get into the second chapter of Acts, you realize, wait a minute, they might be right about this. Otherwise, some things don't make sense. And one of those things is that at Mount Sinai, we know that Israel as a nation with one voice spontaneously said, we will do and we will hear. What is also understood is the Torah covenant was offered to all of the 70 nations, went all around the earth. It even There's even a description of how the words went out from Sinai, traveled around the earth, and then came back. Um, and it has to do with Yeshua being the right hand and so forth and how they were inscribed. But they say that there was a remnant among every nation that said, I want to do that. I want to be part of that. But there was not one other nation that as a nation said, we will do and we will hear. And how many of you know it's great when you realize the Father hasn't given up on you and the company you keep? (laughs) Sometimes it's the company we keep, um, and we have to reattach ourselves. And so the Father said, this is not the last chance for this remnant among the nations. I'm going to make a plan here. I'm going to bring them back to this place. And so as Moses is standing poised, to bring the Israelites into the promised land, he reaffirms this covenant, and he says something a little odd. He says, to those of you who are standing here and those of you who are not. So you were there. There was a prophecy in that moment where Moses is saying, hey, that remnant among the nations, I'm going to go get them. And it's going to synchronize, again, with the Feast of Shavuot. When I offered the first time, the offer will be extended again. And in Acts chapter 2, you can see another milestone in that plan. If that offer went out at Shavuot, then it makes sense why in Acts chapter 2, the fire falls again exactly the way that it did at Mount Sinai. This time, there are representatives, there are proselytes from the nations who have come into Jerusalem. And so they're already in a state of obedience as they understand it. And then when they witness what I believe were uh, Hebrew letter sheens of fire descending down upon the disciples, because this is the, this is the name of the ceiling, it's Shaddai. And you'll see it on Tefillin, when the Jewish males put it on their bicep and then they put it on their forehead when they pray each day. The, the Hebrew letter that you see is a sheen that stands for Shaddai, and therefore Shaddai, just like on a mezuzah, is associated with an agreement to keep the commandments, just like at Sinai. It's your little Mount Sinai every day if you put on tefillin. So he says, I'm going to go get them. And so at Acts chapter 2, he shows up, 
And then again, these nations are able to witness the, the fire of the Holy Spirit falling. And this is the moment that Yeshua had told his disciples, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait until you have received what from on high? The power of the Holy Spirit. And so that brings us back to where we are, celebrating Shavuot and saying, well, maybe I never heard it, heard it verbalized just like that, but it makes perfect sense that the righteous, the willing agreeers, they stand at the foot of Mount Sinai each year. In fact, they stand there twice a day. Actually, when you do the Shema morning and evening, you're standing there again. You're having your own little Mount Sinai. And so those in agreement with that, they are sealed over at that time. And what is different in Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit falls to empower them to continue on that walk to perfection until the fall feasts, until, uh, you know, at least in terms of long-term prophecy, until the resurrection of the dead. So when he empowers you of the Holy Spirit, he is sealing you. He has given you the power to walk in the commandments between Shavuot and the fall feasts. Unless, remember what we said yesterday, unless he says there's uh, a bitter root among you, wormwood. Is, does wormwood show up in Revelation? So we know what wormwood is in Revelation. He already told us what wormwood was in the Torah. He said, it's those people among you, they look just like everybody else. They're dressed like everybody else. They're saying Yeshua like everybody else. They're studying the Torah like everyone else. They're coming to the feast like everyone else. But in their heart, they're blessing themselves, saying, when the time of judgment comes, I won't have any accountability because I'm going to persist in this particular sin. And it happens all the time. It's probably a large percentage of people who say we will do and we will hear on the surface, but in their hearts, they know there's something they're not going to give up. They have already determined they will not give that up. And he says, that's Wormwood. These are the people that are going to walk among you, so beware of them. Because little by little, they'll seduce you off into that, that bitter root and the bitter fruit. And then you'll become a fruit loop. All right, so yesterday we talked about when does Israel go up? Well, we go up at Shavuot, which we go up at uh, the feast times. We go up at Pesach, we go up at Shavuot, we go up at Sukkot. There is an ascension, there is an aliyah that takes place because you always go up to Jerusalem and down to everywhere else. So we put that back into the context of Mount Sinai, and you can even put your shofar calls back into the axis of Mount Sinai. If you hear shofar calls or the yovel, sometimes it's called a yovel, or the, you can hear the root of jubilee in there, you're going to hear those blown over the feasts. Shavuot is the axis of all your feasts. So even though it seems like it's the one we put the least amount of emphasis on, it's actually what the other two biggies grow out of. Because that affirmation of the commandments, you agree to keep Pesach. You agree to keep Shavuot. You agree to keep Sukkot. That's embedded within the commandments. And, and that's just like the father. He kind of turns things upside down to see if we're going to be alert and paying attention. And he says, be alert. You don't know what hour I'm coming. 
All right, so we went through that yesterday, and we saw how the, the people, they couldn't come up until a particular time, and then they could come up to a certain point, and then past there, it had to be the 70 elders who came up and they ate and drank. And that is, again, um, we might say a proto-prophecy of our ascension. When it's time to go up to the mountain, we will be able to hold the presence of Adonai, and we will be able to eat and drink as Yeshua says with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are your kinfolk. You're gathered to your kin at that time. So what's up? Uh, The presence of Adonai are what was up, right? When they went up the mountain, that's what Moses found up there. It was the instructions. It was the commandments. Same thing when we go to Jerusalem. That's what we find there. We find agreement with the instructions, we, we will do and we will hear. Um, James even clarified it in the passage that Tammy read this morning, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer, because a doer is a hearer. We will do and we will hear. Can't leave part of that out, or you might have that bitter root and wormwood. And Revelation is, explains in great detail what happens to those who are lukewarm who have that bitter root and wormwood when they are walking and talking just like the rest of us. And pretty much what happens at the end of that story is the lukewarm get thrown into the same wine vat as the wicked among the nations. There's no distinction made between the two of them. Now, can they still be saved? I think the evidence says yes, but it also says pretty much that every work will be burned up which means in terms of what is going to be your responsibility, what's going to be your reward in heaven. Well, he can't trust you with responsibilities in heaven if you've been busily building your own kingdom that you know is going to burn up. You know when you do that, it's going to burn up. When you do unfruitful, fruit loop works of darkness, you know it's going to burn up. And you spend that time doing it anyway instead of building his kingdom, which is a kingdom without end. Those rewards... They follow along after you like little minions. You can't shake them. It says their deeds will follow them. You can't get away from your good deeds that you've done for the sake of the kingdom. But the deeds that you've done for yourself, they get burned up. They don't pass through the gate. They just can't. And so what we see is that we hit the button wrong. Um, If at Shavuot you were unprepared and you were unwilling to complete your journey. And this journey is going to be one of sanctification. He's preparing you to go through the gates of a holy city because you can't bring unclean things in there. They just don't go. There's a fire that will break out. Uh, You saw that happen with Nadav and Avihu. That was an example. What would happen if you tried to drag your fruit loop works of darkness into the holy city? The fire you don't want because then there's nothing left. So you don't really survive that journey through the wilderness, is the message, if you have the bitter root and the wormwood. You're no different from the nations. And that's why Yeshua says it's better that if you were hot or cold. You're actually going to be happier if you're hot or cold. But you knew better and you didn't do better. All right, so... We went over these nine things that come from the wilderness. And because so the, the wilderness represents our strength. It's where we grow strong, and it's where we're prepared to pass into 
the, the land of our inheritance, the promised land. It's where we grow strong and are strengthened uh, in terms of sanctification, holiness, being pre- prepared to live in a city where even your your everyday, um, I don't know <laughs> what, what you guys use for everyday. I don't know if you use paper plates, but uh, it's not... It's not like you're good china. Your everyday plates is what the prophets say. Yeah. Yeah, you're corral. <laughs> the stuff you feed the kids off of. The, even that, they say, is going to be holy, just as holy as what is maintained in the temple precincts. That's pretty doggone holy. So we got a whole lot of learning to do, Lucy, between here and Jerusalem, right? So just quickly. The Torah is from the wilderness. The Mishkan, the tabernacle, is from the wilderness, uh, which is where we get a lot of the prophecy of our temporary dwelling up until we go into the temple in the holy city. It's a kind of a preparatory level of existence. The Sanhedrin, or the court, is from the wilderness. The priesthood is from the wilderness. The Levitical divisions are from the wilderness. The monarchy, we're told that we are a kingdom of priests, in the wilderness, and then he sets the mercy seat among us, the throne of the mercy seat. Now, there's another throne, which is the throne of judgment. And you see those being set up in Revelation. You don't want that resurrection, right? The second resurrection is not the one you want. You want the first one. Uh, The goodly gifts of the well, the manna and the clouds of glory. They walked in clouds of glory when they came out of Egypt. They entered into Sukkot of glory at that first stop there. And they continued walking in the clouds of glory. Rebellion, complaining, disobedience, those sorts of things. And the cloud would basically vomit you out is what the rabbis say, which gives us context for revelation. If you're not fit to be in the cloud, there you go. You're vomit. Uh, And then again, we read in the Hebrews yesterday, the letter to the Hebrews, an odd thing where he talks about you have come to a mountain with myriads of angels. That comes out of the rabbinic tradition. You won't find it specifically in the Torah. But their understanding of it is that uh, crowns, two crowns, were bestowed on each person who said, we will do and we will hear. And uh, those ministering angels, that was their job to award the crowns. But then when Israel sinned and didn't do in here, then they came right back down and they took away those crowns. So we'll see the crowns again in the book of Revelation. Uh, And then prophecy. There's elements of prophecy that are from the wilderness. You can see that beginning with the burning bush and Moses, and he says, you'll come back and you'll worship me on this mountain. And you're going to experience him as Mount Sinai. But uh, as it's understood... The Temple Mount was basically picked up and draped over Mount Sinai in the wilderness like a blanket. And that's what prevented them from being killed by that strong presence of Adonai. And they say something very similar happened at Bethel, at Bethel, when Jacob was able to see. And he's like, oh, man, I've been asleep here, and I didn't realize where I was. It's possible, folks, that you can be walking in a cloud and not know where you are. If Jacob didn't know where he was then it's entirely possible that you could be in a kind of sleep where you don't really know where you are until he opens your eyes and you can see. All right, so the 
two types of going up we went over yesterday, which is both literally ascending, a good thing, but it also means removal. So there's kind of a two-pronged idea there. The, the rebellious Israelites were removed in the wilderness. This is what you're seeing with that angel with the sharp sickle. Once the Son of Man has reaped his own, then the other angel goes out and begins reaping unto the ends of the earth. There's going to be some removals. But the good news for obedient Israel is that she is removed to that level of inheritance. So there's good and there's bad removals. This particular verse in the Song of Songs is associated with that removal because it describes the wilderness. If all the good things in the wilderness prepare us for the next level of our service, the next level of our service. Think um, sometimes words mean things because we have a, a thing in the back of our mind that's built on dumb movies. And so... In Revelation, when it talks about those who uh, worship the image of the beast, just in your mind, click a little word substitutor and say those who serve. Because see, in Hebrew, avodah, it's not just work, it's service. It's not just worship, it's service. And sometimes just that small distinction helps you understand who might be serving the beast rather than worshiping an image like we see with King Nebuchadnezzar. So this is what it says. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the scented powders of the merchant? Of course, we know this is Israel coming up from the wilderness. That's where she grew strong. That's where we observe the columns of smoke, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Uh, We also observe the the columns, the smoke of the incense, of the incense offering. We also observe the smoke from the outer altar. And what goes with that is going to be handfuls of frankincense that is offered on the altar. So again, where are the souls in Revelation? Where are they stored? Under the altar. And they're saying, how long, O Lord? They have sacrificed their lives. They have served, not the image of the beast. They have served the Holy One. And then it says, with all the scented powders of the merchant. Now, that does require a little bit of clarification because uh, the buying and the selling throws us off a little bit in the book of Revelation. Just understand that context in the prophets has more to do with what you do on Shabbat and the holy days. It's not in general. There's no context for it being in general in Scripture. But we have at least two contexts for that phrase being associated with buying and selling on Shabbat in the holy days. And people who think Shabbat is just a wearisome interruption to their commercial activity. Now that fits very nicely into the book of Revelation. So it keeps the same context that it had in the prophets as it does in Revelation. We don't have to make up new things and computer chips and all that. Although if you want a computer chip, to be the mark of the beast. Go ahead. Uh, so again, that's just kind of a recap. But like I said, the powders of the merchant does require a little bit of explanation. And um, the powders, it's avocado, avocado, and it really, really means just dust. 
the dust of the merchant. And so that's what those uh, spices were called. Because if you've ever been through the shuk in Jerusalem or anywhere in the Middle East and you've seen those piles of spice powders, it makes sense. But the, the spice merchant, merchants were known for their variety. That's the implication there. That's what you're supposed to take away from that is that a merchant will bring his merchandise from afar, just like the Proverbs 31 woman, which is a parable of the Holy Spirit. Make sense? Okay. So the rabbis trace this word back to its first mention, its shoresh, or its root. They trace it all the way back to the fight that Jacob has with, in tradition, it says Esau's angel. Right? You can dispute that. I don't think it changes the outcome of of what it's saying here. Uh, If we see Esau or Edom as Rome, which is also what tradition says, and that the Roman systems have infested and infected the feet of all the nations. You can see the iron mixed with the clay of the nations, and they're standing. It's in the feet. Those feet are going to be significant. But at any rate, remember Jacob's moving everybody around, trying to make sure all the the kids are protected and the moms are protected, and he's kind of fracturing them into four different groups to make sure if one falls, another one will still be there. And so he's crossing the the Yavok River, and he struggles all night with this man or angel. And if it is Esau's angel... Or at least it represents Esau that he is struggling with. Then this wrestling match uh, is also going to be prophetic of our end time wrestling match with Rome. All right, Rome being the red one, the red beast of Revelation. We say, well, Rome is dead. No, it's not. We still have a senate. We still have stadiums. We still have politics. We still have Roman philosophy. If you studied medicine, I guarantee you, you know a lot of Latin. If you start looking into almost every system, whether it's government, sports, healthcare, education, all of that, it's infected and infested. And they actually, that's because the the leopard doesn't change its spots. Remember, the leopard preceded Rome. Those spots mean something, and Scripture explains it to you what those spots are. And maybe in the future we'll talk about, have you been spotted? That was a joke. <laughs> that was a pun. <laughs> At any rate, yes, those spots are still there, but we are supposed to remain unspotted from the world because the leopard does not change its spots. It tries to pull you into its systems. It pulls you in. It does not change. And that's always been the challenge is assimilation. So this dust, it goes back uh, to strong 79 and 80 of Bach. And uh, it has to do with the wrestling, this action of wrestling, which apparently would kick up dust in that place and time. Uh, from Genesis 32, 24, and 25, if you want to look it up. But the the rabbis make the point, what Jacob is trying to do is return these tribes. He's got 11 and then one in the oven. Okay, so (laughs) 
or soon to be in the oven at this point. He has to get those 12 sons back into the land of inheritance. So where do you think he is going to transport you eventually? Back to the land of your inheritance, unless you just don't want to be there. I I suspect he would respect that wish. Uh, But I think that's where we all wish we will be, hope we will be. In fact, there's no wishing. Forget wishing. That's for Disneyland, and we don't like Disneyland anymore, do we? That's where we're going to be. That's where we will be. So each of these 12 tribes represents a different spice or a different gift or blessing that comprises the tribes of Israel. So they are like, you know, the Proverbs woman bringing her food from afar. So as you see them coming up from the wilderness, remember they they did have other nations mixed in there among them. They have a remnant. And that's the, the message there is that remnant can be sealed at Mount Sinai at Shavuot along with the natural-born Israelite because now they're embedded among the spices in the wilderness. They also can bring offerings if, if they've got the Ruth heart. All right, so uh, this we did go over just a little bit from the Torah portion yesterday, the encampments, but remember... We went over this last time I was here, I think, how these four facing encampments represent this divine machine. Eventually, these 12 tribes are going to be installed in the 12 gates of Jerusalem to judge the nations who will come up and bring their offerings up. So we will be the first line of defense for those attempting to enter from outside the city. Because, again, as you penetrate into the city toward the Temple Mount, it gets holier and holier and more and more dangerous for someone who is in a state of uncleanness. But they were also intended to affect the entire earth with their service, with the tabernacle service. As they gave these offerings, remember the the frankincense, it goes on to the offering. But as they gave their offerings, it brought peace on earth. It brought the angels of the four winds into a state of synchronization so that the winds were favorable and peaceful to bring forth good things in the earth. It's when Israel abdicates in terms of their obedience, that's when the angels of the four winds just go haywire. And you know that. You're in hurricane zone. And so Exodus 15, 13, it gives us a hint here. It says, in your faithfulness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. This is the song of the sea. They're in between the promise, I'll take you out, but then I'm going to take you to the mountain. Uh, In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were terrified. If you want to see how... The red beast will perceive us at the end of days. I know we get terrified by that serpent in the water coming out of the mouth in the wilderness, and that is a little bit terrifying. But we know that eventually a time will come for this will be replayed because it's prophecy. It comes in fractals. It comes in multiple fulfillments. And what the Israelites did not know until 40 years was up was how terrified the nations were of them. They were frozen. Look at this. They're literally frozen. The chiefs of Edom, Rome, the red beast, were terrified. 
The leaders of Moab, trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have despaired. Terror and dread, and this is, shows you its prophecy. There's a little dra- grammar twist right here, and it says, will fall. Will fall. It's future tense. This will happen again. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. They are literally frozen in stone, like stone. That wasn't a pun. I just misspoke. So why are they being held motionless is the question. He explains. He says, until your people pass over. You realize passing over is what makes you a Hebrew? Yavor, Ivrit, Hebrew, right? An Ivri, a Hebrew. So until your people become Hebrews. That's one way of looking at it. Until the people pass over whom you have purchased. See the repetition? That usually means two fulfillments. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, where, which you have made is your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. So again, in the rep- repetition, the place you have made is your dwelling. He made a mishkan dwelling in the wilderness, and we were strengthened there. But then he brought them to a place they could pass over. They didn't just pass over the Reed Sea. They also passed eventually into the land of their inheritance. And when that time comes that we cross over, the nations will literally be frozen in place. And the fear and the terror and the dread. Now, they might restart their engines once we've crossed over. Get ready for that. But once we've crossed over, uh, we'll look at some scriptures. It looks like they will, the worst of the wickedness will come out of them, and they will begin to blaspheme the holy name, and they will begin to blaspheme us. The good news, it says, those who dwell in heaven. So it's one thing if they're, they're calling you names to your face, you know, a hand's breadth from your face. But it's another thing entirely when you're on the other side of that veil. Like, give it your best shot. So here's our beast kingdoms. We've got Babylon, which was the golden head. We've got Medo-Persia, which was the silver upper torso, the bear. We've got Greece, uh, who was the, the bronze lower torso. And this is where we pick up the spots. This is where we pick up the systems, You're not going to have nearly as much organization in Babylon and Medo-Persia as what you will encounter with Alexander the Great and then the four kingdoms that spun off of him. He put his four strongest in place. When he was asked, who shall inherit? He says, the strongest. So these are strong, and these spots are strong. So all the systems that Rome picked up and perfected, they got it from Greece. They just took the same gods and renamed them. You had to learn that in high school, didn't you? (laughs) You had to learn the Greek and the Roman names. So everything that Greece imposed, this is where we get our Hanukkah story, and the, the big battle of Hanukkah was assimilation. The spots, the spots aren't going to change no matter which nation they go into. They are going to try to assimilate you into the spots. And so Rome just perfected that. And then Rome... Uh, If you'll notice, Daniel doesn't really know how to describe Rome as a particular animal. 
it seems to be some sort of conglomerate. Why? Because it is. It's showing you the golden head of Babylon. It's showing you the the silver of Medo-Persia. It's showing you the bronze of Greece. And then these iron legs of Rome, and actually the iron is in the teeth of Babylon. It has more teeth than Babylon had in the lion head. So let's look at Revelation and see if we can get some ideas here. And just a principle to keep in the back of your mind, and if this doesn't make sense to you, talk to the Merwins. <laughs> because they have been listening to this ad nauseum, right? So the principle is when the beast comes from the wilderness or he comes from the forest, if that is the place of his origination, he's strong and his kingdom will endure. If, however, the beast comes out of the sea, he will weaken and he will die just like a sea creature. So I know when we're looking at Revelation right here, we see the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. You're thinking, oh my goodness, that's horrible. You should be saying, oh great, it's almost over. Because just like the pharaohs lost their power when they left the boundaries of Egypt, Egypt was never what it was before they went to Babylon and tried to wage war against Babylon. That's where they lost their strength. They passed off that strength and authority to the first beast kingdom, which was Babylon. So the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, which is good news. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names." Now, crowns can have different meanings, but often, uh, I mean, horns can have different meanings, but one of the most common meanings is it's a person within an empire or within a particular kingdom. He says, the beast that I saw was like a leopard, that's Greece, and his feet were like those of a bear, that's Medo-Persia, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, which was Babylon. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, something to keep in the back of your mind when you're studying the prophets, they can switch time periods on you in a word. So you might be reading something that has happened in the past, maybe happened again, like the destruction, the last holdouts of the Jews on the mountains of Betar where you know John sees something that has to do with blood up to the horse's bridles, that is the exact historical description of what happened at Betar when the last vestige of Jewish self-government disappeared until 1948. The historian says there was blood up to the Roman horse's noses, and they wiped out everybody. They wiped out every Jewish resistance. Yeshua describes that in his prophecy, and you have to realize at what point he shifts from this prophecy of those who are in Jerusalem need to flee to the mountains. Or if you're in Judea, you need to flee to the mountains. Uh, That's a particular time period, and those particular things have already happened. And then he switches, and he starts talking about something that hasn't happened yet. And if you're not paying attention, you don't realize at what point he shifted from something that for him was future, to the disciples were future, now it's past to us but then he's prophesied of something that hasn't happened at all yet. Am I talking fast? Okay. He says, I saw one of its heads 
as if it had been fatally wounded, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. This is something that's already happened thousands of years ago. Pharaoh Necho gave his authority to King Nebuchadnezzar. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? A mouth was given to him, speaking arrogant words and blasphemous names, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. His tabernacle. What was in the wilderness? The tabernacle. We were doing what in the wilderness? Preparing and growing strong. Even though most people died. (laughs) We really were preparing and growing strong in the wilderness. It says, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So we want to look at the cognates here. Because John can be envisioning things that have happened long past into things that have not yet happened. And he can do it right in the same neighborhood which if, if you don't know, the prophecy is confusing. And that's why people run circles around the book of Revelation. So anybody that tells you they have it nailed down, be suspicious. He's really suspicious. So we want to look at his uh, tabernacle. These are people being blasphemed along with the Holy One, but they are already dwelling in heaven. Now that seems like a waste of energy. If they're already in heaven, why would you waste your time? They're untouchable. The Hebrew cognates to the tabernacle here, which uh, is skene, three different Hebrew words are used that you should be familiar with, at least minimally familiar with, because uh, each of them has been used in some way to describe the tabernacle in the wilderness. And that's going to be the ohel, The Ohel Moed is the tent of meeting. It's going to refer very specifically to being the focal point of the feasts. Why have you been called to the feasts when you didn't grow up that way, maybe? We've got lots of kids here who are growing up that way. That's good news. But you who were not brought up in the feast, why would he bring you into the feast is the question based on this text. He wants to protect you against the blasphemies that are going to take place. The other word that is used for skene is mishkan, the tabernacle itself, and then sukkah. So wouldn't it be good to know that we were already in a sukkah? Even if they're out there blaspheming us outside, who cares? Who cares? Uh, Let's see, we went over this. The water dragon historically was Pharaoh Necho. He waged war against uh, Babylon, lost badly, and went wee-wee-wee all the way home back to Egypt and was never uh, nearly as strong as Egypt had been up to that point. That's when the land-based beast kingdoms arose. Pharaoh is a water creature. You take him away from the Nile, you strip him of his power. He becomes minimally powerful. And that's why you see, like, um, Cleopatra was not really Egyptian. She was Greek because their, their power weakened and weakened, so it was really easy for Greece to defeat Egypt. And um, 
they took a lot of the culture of Egypt, but they were still Greeks because the leopard doesn't change his spots. All right. When you need to worry about the beast uh, is when you see the boar come from the forest. When the beast emerges from the wilderness or the forest, it is strong and it will build an empire that's enduring. And that's when you see the beast building on the strength of the previous empire. So it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. When it does come out of the water, it will quickly weaken and die, no matter what it looks like at that point. And so just to give an example of this principle, I wanted to look at that passage where the the woman is taken to the wilderness in Revelation, and it says the earth helped the woman. How did she? That's what y'all needed this morning. You needed the earth (laughs) to help the woman, right? (laughs) Too much water here. And, it, you know, it's, it's a great little uh, object lesson because what does the dragon do? He spits out a flood of water, which is literally a flood of wickedness. If you understand the symbolism, the water that was coming out of his mouth was a flood of wickedness. But we will be helped, right? It says in uh, Revelation twelve twelve, for this reason rejoice. See, the world will be in terror, but... We're being told rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. Remember, those who dwell in the tabernacle in heaven. doesn't matter if they're blaspheming you. It says, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. It sounds as though there's no room for him anymore. See, he's your prosecutor. If you have been perfected, if you've been sealed over at Shavuot with the power of the Holy Spirit, and you have continued walking in the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience, then at the resurrection of the dead, you're going to be made perfect, spirit, soul, and body. How can he accuse you? Right. Someone can only accuse you if you're doing something wrong. When you quit doing wrong things, he doesn't have a job. And that's what we need to do. You know, in term, sometimes there are false accusations. But most of the time, we generate enough true ones to keep Satan busy. So what are we going to do? We're going to take away his power of accusation in the heavenlies. Because, see, if, if we are part of that, but we're still sinning, he can still accuse us because the sin's still there. But once... We are transformed and protected and sealed, and all these good things are happening. We're being strengthened in the cloud. Then he's going to know his time is short because what will my job be? The only people I have left to accuse are down there. The only people who are vulnerable are on the earth. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time away from the presence of the serpent. And I don't want to go into it today, but I think the implication here from everything I'm reading is that this time, times, and half a time, it has multiple explanations, and they're not all in the same time period. It it can actually refer to thousands. It can refer to a year. It can even refer to just the footsteps of Messiah. So don't lock yourself in on something 
to the point that there might be additional information and additional applications, and they're still true. That's the way prophecy is. It can cover multiple time periods. And the serpent hurled water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon had hurled out of its mouth. See, the, the dragon's power is in the water. So he's hurling water after the woman. But see, the, the earth is the place of strength. And so the woman is strengthened here. She is nourished here. And the dragon trying to attack the woman in the wilderness in the earth is just not going to be effective at all. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. These are the people that he's headhunting, right? And so, again, that lukewarmness. What if you keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua but in only a one-foot-in-one-foot-out way? You're in danger zone. You're in the red zone for sure. And here's a description of the wilderness of the peoples that we can say, yes, we study the wilderness journey to help us understand our own times, but our time is going to be a little bit different in terms of what defines the wilderness. It may not be a geographic location between Egypt and Israel. Um, let's look first at Isaiah 14, 7. Uh, this was a prophecy to the king of Babylon. Remember the king of Babylon? He says, I'm going to lift my throne above the throne of God. I'm going to sit on the mount of the Moed. It's giving us all the markers here that the arrogant one, or one of the arrogant ones, is going to be the king of Babylon. And remember, he was the head of the beast. He was the golden head. So he's the dead head. And uh, it says in some way he's going to be resurrected among the nations as Babylon the Great. And I think this is why we're seeing Babylon the Great has fallen. Fallen. It's not just the trial of the Sotah, the woman accused, for her belly and her thigh will fall, fall. And remember, the, the grain offering associated with that trial is barley. The Omer of the barley is reaped at Pesach. A trial starts at Pesach. That's why I say don't just jump lightly over Passover and Shavuot. The days might be shortened in such a way that you're entering into a gate, even the night before Pesach, because that's when the Omer was reaped, in the first watch of the night, the night before Pesach, because you can't go out and start doing field work on uh, Passover itself. But here's what was said of the king of Babylon who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities who did not allow his prisoners to go home. The world like a wilderness. Let that kind of set in your brain revelation. The woman was sent to the wilderness where she's nourished at time and times and half time away from the presence of the ser serpent. But this is more specific about saying that where we have been scattered has now become our wilderness. As I live, declares the Lord God, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. There's the wrath of the Lamb. I assuredly shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you were scattered. That's another wilderness. 
with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Do you hear the Passover language there? You, you do that every year at Passover with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. What's the cup of Elijah for? Wrath. I mean, it's fun to go look for Elijah, but if he's there, oops. <laughs> what you going to do with that cup, Elijah? The wrath's going, because see, the cup has to be full. When the cup of iniquity is full, they say the change of kingdoms is nothing more than Adonai basically taking one cup of wine and pouring it into the next. That's how fast the regime, regime changes come. So he says, I will gather you from the lands where you were scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with wrath poured out, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Wilderness, wilderness. Two levels of wilderness here. I'm going to take you out from those nations where I've scattered you, but now you're in that same precarious position as the Israelites in the wilderness. You're in a semi-supernatural state, but you can mess up. If you're rebellious, if you have that bitter root and wormwood, he will deal with you and judge you face-to-face in that wilderness. And watch what it says will happen. If you're lukewarm, if you're in, if you're out, if you're in, if you're out. He says, just as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I enter into judgment with you. He's not going to take you to the Negev desert necessarily to judge you face to face. He's going to judge you where you stand. I will make you pass under the rod. That's a a phrase that goes with the Feast of Trumpets. It says, all the nations will pass under the shepherd's rod for a reckoning, for an accounting. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. See, if you're having to pass under the rod, that's kind of bad news. Because you're going under there with the nations. You weren't sealed up at Shavuot. You still had a bitter root and wormwood at Mount Sinai, at Shavuot, when you should have had that seal of the Holy Spirit. You still had some things you thought you needed to do. You still thought there was some fun to be had out there in the world. Times like this are not the times to think, I still have a little fun left to have in this world. It's not worth it. It's not worth finding yourself going under the rod with the goats. He says, I will bring you into the bond of covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who revolt against me. The idea here is, at the Feast of Trumpets, those who have already been sealed are resurrected. That's the first resurrection. If you have not been sealed at that point, you have 10 days to get her done. You better repent before the gates close at Yom Kippur. And he says, I will purge from you the rebels and those who revolt. That is the bitter root and the wormwood among us. And you know, he's really not even talking about the nations here. Just like the seven assemblies, that's not the nations. That's not the, the wicked people out there. He's not even talking to them at that point. They're not a thing. They are so nothing. (laughs) He's talking to people like us. You better get ready. It's a holy city, and I don't want you to miss the gates being opened. I don't want you to get there and find the gates are closed, and you're outside the city with the blood running up to the horse's bridles while I'm trampling grapes. You don't want to be Gilbert Grape. 
at that point. He says, I will bring them out of the land where they reside. He will bring you into that wilderness with everybody else. So I say, be careful who you're walking with. They can walk like you, talk like you, use the same vocabulary, attend the same feast, but there is a bitter root and wormwood. We can't say they're rootless because they have a bitter root. They will not enter the land of Israel. They won't do it. They will die out there in the wilderness. The implication is that they will go into tribulation with the rest of the nations. Great tribulation, not just tribulation. There will be tribulation up to that point. We will walk in tribulation. But from that point on, there will be great tribulation. And then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and saying, who can stand against the wrath of the Lamb? Because they already know. They've been educated. But they didn't get rid of the bitter root of self-will. So it's possible, because we're talking about the tent of meeting, the tent of the appointed time, the mishkan, the tabernacle, the indwelling presence, the sukkot of glory, or the clouds of glory, that Israel will already be dwelling in that cloud at the time this occurs. And that's why I believe keeping the feast and the power of the Holy Spirit, that is what you can do. Now, there's lots of things that hang on that. Lots of things that hang on that. But if you want to be one of those dwelling in heaven, and there's different levels of heaven. That's why I say you might actually be in the cloud and not really get a grip on where you are until one second after you rebel against Moses. That's pretty stiff, right? So let's just look really quick at that same verse from yesterday again. Hebrew twelve eighteen through 21, and then verse 23, because this is a Sinai Shavuot understanding from a rabbinic standpoint. So it's appropriate. It should be in the letter to the Hebrews. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who begged, who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. See, that's what the nations couldn't cope with. They couldn't deal with it. There was only a remnant. But for Israel, they even had trouble at this point. They could not cope with the command, if even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Why would they not be able to cope with a mountain being stoned for touching the mountain? The beast. See, we're still fighting the beast. Because the barley is beast food. That's the context of that. You start your journey like a beast, and then you are refined and you are perfected up until Shavuot. And at the time of the waving of those two loaves, the two leavened loaves, you should have been purged from your animal nature, and it should have been replaced with the nature of Elohim by Shavuot, so that you can with a whole heart say, we will do and we will hear. Because if the beast is still residing in there, if you are still serving that beast within, then you will say it with your mouth, but where will you be in your heart? Blessing yourself in your heart, saying it's going to be okay if I'm half in and half out. 
bless my heart, I can still save this little sin on the side. Don't bless your heart that way. I know we're in the South, but don't bless your heart. I don't bless your heart for that. Get rid of that bitter root. Get rid of that wormwood. Because a third of the waters are going to die from that. The waters are the, the nations. Wherever you are, you can die from just thinking that way. So it says, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm terrified and trembling, but you have come to Mount Sion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, goes back to those crowns, to the general assembly. The Hebrew cognate there for that is moed. You have come to the moed. That's significant. And the church, the cognate there is the kahal, the kehilah, the assembly of Israel, to the first of the firstborn who are enrolled, which is katav, in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous, the tzaddikim made perfect. See, he's just repeating what the rabbis say, that the righteous, the tzaddikim, are sealed over at Shavuot. And this is when your name is katav, when it's written down, in the heavenlies. And it goes back to all Israel is my firstborn. Remember that from yesterday? Israel is my firstborn. You have come to the kahal or the kahila of the firstborn. That's where you want to be. Uh, Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3 affirms it. He says, I remember regarding you the devotion of your youth, your love when you were a bride, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. All right, so you, you've been going through the seven assemblies of Revelation, right? That should sound very familiar to you. Return to your first love. Go back to the wilderness and learn those lessons again. So how am I doing on time? An hour? Let's try to wrap this up with the sickles, because I want to give you something to go study. I want you to go back to Revelation, but I'm going to give you the highlights of the, the sickles and the two times of reaping, because you realize the time of barley reaping just merges into the time of wheat reaping. That's why the book of Ruth is traditional to read the book of Ruth, because it spans the time between Passover and Shavuot. So it's continuous. This is why if you're sealed at Shavuot, you just keep harvesting the wheat. The wheat that's the first roots, but it still keeps coming in, and you'll continue that harvest. And then you can bring your tithes of it and your first roots in at Sukkot because it's already a done deal. It's already been gathered up, bound up, reaped, and now it's brought into the temple. It's something holy by then. Uh, but let's look at some of the customs for reaping the barley at Pesach. And that's why I say be ready, even alert, even the day before Pesach. Maybe even back up. Go all the way to the 10th of the month when you bring the lamb in. Maybe even back up. Maybe you can go into the 1st of the month. Maybe even back up. Go back to Sukkot. Maybe even back up. Go back to Shavuot. Maybe even back up. Go back to... You see what he's saying? Be present. At every feast, spiritually awake and present at every feast. It doesn't mean you can't go to sleep at night. You can go to sleep at night. 
But see, if you take care of your business, your spiritual business, that's what the song says. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. If your heart's awake, you're not asleep, no matter what your body's doing, right? So uh, the Omer offering would come from three seah of reaped barley. Both on Shabbat and during the week, it was reaped by three people with three baskets with three sickles. Not a motorcycle. You knew that was coming. (laughs) The mitzvah of the Omer is to bring the barley reaped for the meal offering from fields proximate to Jerusalem. That means something. If the barley did not ripen in the fields proximate to Jerusalem, then you can bring it from any place in the land. But where do you look first? As close to Jerusalem as you can possibly get. And the reason for that is a principle called Ein Ma'avirin Al Hamitzvot, which is we do not pass over a mitzvah. Um, When you're given a commandment, and you know to do it, you do it fast. Do it now. Don't wait. If you're going to say the Shema, say it in the first watch of the night. Don't wait till the second watch of the night. Don't wait till the third watch of the night because day could break and you got distracted. Something happened. Somebody had to go to the emergency room. And you can never turn back the time clock and do that mitzvah and, and fill in that blank. Now, can you learn for next time? Sure. Up until there is no time then you can't turn back the clock for sure. Uh, but the, the principle here is they apply it to the reaping of the omer of the barley. They want to make sure when it's time to keep this particular commandment of reaping, it's done fast. We don't want anything to interfere. See, if we're journeying all the way up north into the Galilee, it's going to take days and days and days. We don't want to do that because then the barley will be dry. They want it green and they want it moist, just like us. We need to be full of sap and very green, right? Moses' moisture, it says, did not diminish even at the end of his life. He was still full of Torah. So you want to reap from those closest to Jerusalem. Why do we go up to Jerusalem at the feasts? If we can't literally do it, we still do it in our heart because we want to be moist, We want to hurry the commandment, and we want to be among those that are sought among for first fruits. So, the idea is that those closest to to Jerusalem at the time of the feast are the most likely to be the hearers of the mitzvot, the hearers of the commandments, because they're not wasting time. What, if you were supposed to go up to Jerusalem three times a year to keep the feasts, would you wait and start the journey the first day of the feast? Wow, you get a long journey for most people. I mean, even if you lived in Bethlehem, that's a hot, dusty walk, and that's close. So they would, of course, be all in and around Jerusalem awaiting the trumpets, the shofar. And here's how the, the barley would be harvested. Harvested. Emissaries of the court would emerge. Remember, we got the court from the wilderness? That's one of the things that came out of the wilderness. They would emerge on the eve of the festival of Passover, 
and fashioned stalks of barley into sheaves while the stalks were still attached to the ground. I think this is a clue. We may be gathered, we may be bound together in little sheaves, just like the little flocks we talked about last time that are going to be out there during the footsteps of Messiah. It may be also, because remember, the Song of Ascents we sing every Shabbat, Shir Hamalot, the Song of Ascents, makes sense to you? Where it talks about the sheaves? Okay. Um, he could be binding us into little sheaves while our roots are still in the ground. Because he doesn't harvest us stock by stock, even so some, some people act like that. Like, I'm so correct. Let me get away from all these other barleys because, you know, I'm right. And when I'm, you know, he's gonna, just going to reap me. No, you're either going to be reaped with a sheaf or you might be left in the field. What about those two guys in the field, right? You don't want to be the one left there. Uh, and so the, the residents of all the towns adjacent to the site of the harvest would assemble there so that it would uh, be, what is that word, harvested with great fanfare. Once it grew dark, so this is the first watch of the night right before Passover. Not the day of Passover when you sacrifice the lamb, not that day. The day before that. That's when this was harvested. Once the night sets in, in the first watch of the night, the court emissary says to those assembled, did the sun set? The assembly says in response, yes. You have to have witnesses, right? You have to have two or three witnesses. The emissary uh, repeats, did the sun set? They say, yes. Does it sound like he's delaying a little? The court emissary next says to those assembled, shall I reap the sheaves with this sickle? The assembly says, yes. The emissary repeats, with this sickle. The assembly says, yes. The court emissary then says to those assembled, shall I place the sheaves in this basket? The assembly says, yes. The emissary repeats, in this basket. The assembly says, yes. The court emissary says to those assembled, now watch what changes here. Shall I reap the sheaves? And they say to him, not yes, they say reap. Why the difference? It says the emissary asks three times with regard to each and every matter, and the assembly says to him, yes, 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 and then reap. Why? It's said by the rabbis that this pattern is that when they say reap instead of yes, it means fast, do it now, do it, yes, put the sickle in, quit asking questions, do it now. The time has come, don't delay, hurry the mitzvah. There's a principle there for us to learn. We have all the time in the world, we think. Yes, yes, yes. Do you affirm the commandments? Yes. How many Shavuot's have you said yes to the commandments? But one day, he'll say reap. And there's no more time. 
If you're out wandering around, if you're gone fishing, if you're gone hunting, if you're gone to the ball game, if you're gone to you fill in the blank, whatever you like, whatever it is struggling inside of you, the beast inside of you that is struggling against his spirit, whatever that thing is, is what you're serving. He says, you're not my servant. Because now I'm going to reap. I'm going to show you who you're serving. So again, the barley is brought also by a woman suspected of adultery. So this particular rite, custom, method of reaping the barley, the implication there, just like we read in Jeremiah, the implication there is that Israel is being tested the day before Passover. They're bringing in this barley. What do they do? They put it in her hands. She's suspected of adultery. Is Israel the adulterous woman riding the scarlet beast? Or has she gathered and said, we will do and we will hear. Whatever it takes to perfect us, we give it to you. We give those things. No matter how long it takes, I'm willing to keep repenting and redoing until I get it right. Some things we give up fast, other things medium, other things very, very slow. But as long as you're willing to give it up, and you know, you're the, you're the one who knows and maybe doesn't know because we lie to ourselves about these little things. You're the one who knows whether you're really willing to give it up. But see, you don't know because you'll deceive yourself. He's going to show you. If you've deceived yourself, if you have been adulterous in your heart, he will reveal it to you. All right, so we've got some hints here. If you just want to take a picture of that, I'm just going to flash it up here right quick. Um, The idea that we're entering in at Passover. Something important happens at Passover. You continue along that path. The first thing you had to understand was get the chametz out. Get the leaven out because chametz is something that sours. And that's what they call souring the commandment. When you delay to do the commandment, you soured it. You've got to get that sour out of you as it pertains to the commandment. Is Shabbat service an inconvenience? Is gathering people with people who don't do just like you do, is that sour to you? If they don't say and do just exactly what you want them to do and so you can make the congregation in your own image, is that sour to you? Because, see, in a perfect congregation, we leave here with a smile out of one side and a frown out of the other because we're lots of spices mixed together. And not everything is going to fit everybody's taste. We still have to say with one voice, we will do and we will hear. We can't be rebellious. We can't be complainers in the wilderness. 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 Get that in your spirit because it'll make, I'm telling you, I didn't write it. Moses copied that one down. Time after time after time, they complained about the conditions. They complained about the food. They complained about the water. They complained about the leadership. They said it's impossible. They had vision issues. But don't let the chametz 
enter into your commandment keeping. Don't let your commandment keeping be sour and distasteful. You hurry to do it before it becomes sour. But see, if you delay in doing it, it'll go sour. Do it quickly. So here's your sickle chapter. This is what I really want you to study now in the context of reaping the barley. In Revelation 14, 1, and then skipping down to 9 through 10, it says, I looked, and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Sion. Where have we come to? You have come to Sion, right. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, remember what word are we going to put in there? Serves. If anyone serves the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Right. So you'll notice there's a sheen on the tefillin. There's an anomaly, though. Instead of three prongs, there's four. It represents the Holy Spirit of the commandments. Not just the letter of the commandments, the spirit. Because if you have the spirit of the commandment, you'll do it quickly. And so when you wear tefillin, you have to be very careful. In other words, when you proclaim yourself a commandment keeper, you have to be very, very careful. Because you're either a first fruits, you're either a firstborn son redeemed, or you've got the bitter root. Blessing yourself in your heart and saying, I don't have to do everything he requires of me. Um, It says, then I looked, behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was the one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. All right, who dwells in the cloud? We do, and we dwell in the presence of the Holy One. It says he's sitting on it. In Hebrew, it would... It could just as likely mean living, dwelling. Sitting and dwelling are the same Hebrew word. So there is the Son of Man dwelling in the cloud. He has the crown. He has a sharp sickle. And he says, to the one who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. It's going to happen fast. Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come. Because the harvest of the earth is ripe, then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Right? However, even though Yeshua is going to hurry the commandment, he's not going to let the commandment go sour when it comes to reaping his own. We also see another angel right after this. Once Yeshua is done reaping, From the barley to the wheat harvest, it says another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. See, it's extended now into the time of Sukkot, the fall feast. That's why you don't want to wait that long. Do not wait until the Feast of Trumpets. 
Put in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trampled outside, outside the city. And blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Right, so there's a contrast there. There is Yeshua's harvest, his feast harvest, but what it looks like is exactly what the rabbis are saying. You're sealed over at Shavuot because you entered into a narrow gate at Passover, but you agreed to be gathered. Even though you thought that barley next to you just didn't have it all together, you agreed to be gathered with that sheaf. You bound yourself into your community. You served him within that community. So when Yeshua comes, he comes at Passover. You may not understand how it happens. I don't. But I know that something will happen at Passover that will cause people to bind together. And they will continue to Shavuot, and together they will say, as a community, we will do and we will hear. And in this process, Yeshua is harvesting Harvesting, harvesting, harvesting. And then, when that cloud lifts, when it ascends, what's going to happen between there and the Feast of Trumpets? We don't know exactly. But we know we're with Yeshua in some way. We know we're being protected in his tabernacle in some way. And then when we hear that trumpet that's probably when it's going to feel more like being in the cloud. It's going to make a difference, probably, to be part of that resurrection of the dead. But what you don't want is to hear that trumpet at the Feast of Trumpets and realize you don't see your community. Where'd they go? Where they might be standing right beside you. They've simply passed into a realm that Yeshua says, you can't go where I'm going right now, but you're going to know the way. You'll know. You'll know how to get in there. At the right time, you'll be in there. It doesn't mean we're not right there. Just like if Yeshua disappeared, it didn't mean he wasn't in the room. You are able at that point, because your body is transformed, to enter a realm that Yeshua has entered and prepared for us. But to realize your community, you can't see them anymore. And realize, now my fate, I might be saved, but I'm about to get thrown into the great wine press with the nations. No distinctions, because he's using a sickle. He's not using a pruning knife. It looks like a pruning knife that they harvest grapes with. More of a fine operation. Instead, this angel, he's out for blood. Because he's taking a harvest sickle. Imagine, you're the one that had the bitter root. And you see the sharp sickle, and you said, I should have been with the other sheaves when the Son of Man went out to harvest his. And now I've got to deal with this angel. And he's not picky about how he uses the sickle. I'm going in there with everyone else. The good news is the scriptures do suggest that if you do call on his name, if you are saved, even though you will go through great tribulation, 
If you call on him, you can be saved. It says, though, as the, it's going to be like fire. Everything's going to be burned up, and you enter into the kingdom basically a pauper. Except in terms of your salvation, you'll be rich in that. Uh, the, the end. Of-